This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My co-host Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Elaine Weiss discusses her new book, The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. Then PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed recaps the PubTech Connect conference. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. We've got some exciting stuff happening in hardcover nonfiction, new number one and number two. At number one is Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? The No-Nonsense Guide to Achieving Optimal Weight and Lifelong Health by Mark Hyman. We reviewed this and said that uh, Hyman is here revisiting the topic of his earlier books, why a lack of understanding about good nutrition coupled with misleading, conflicting media hype leads to poor food choices and makes people sick and out of shape. However, here Hyman is really recycling his diet plan once again, though it remains a pretty sensible anti-inflammatory whole food slash quote-unquote real food approach. Uh, we say that this is nothing new, but it should prove as popular as Hyman's earlier efforts with health enthusiasts who believe in the promises of functional medicine. At number two, I've been thinking Reflections, Prayers, and Meditations for a Meaningful Life by Maria Shriver. Uh, we say this collection of reflections is uh, more sincere than eloquent as Shriver meditates on finding a meaningful life. Uh, she writes informally about her four children, four brothers, and 60 years of learning and praying. And we say that the honesty of this uplifting book will please Shriver's established readership as well as new readers looking for inspiration. So that's at number two. And uh, finally, at number five, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer. We gave this a starred review. It's a posthumous debut, and it recounts the chilling crimes of serial murderer in California in the 1970s and 80s, alongside the indefatigable investigation of crime writer McNamara, who was trying to uncover the identity of the killer decades later. Uh, when she started writing about the case on her website in 2011, DNA testing had already linked 10 murders and 50 assaults to one unknown man, and she has been hunting him down. Uh, by the time of her sudden death in 2016, McNamara had inspired an online community of sleuths who still continue to research the crimes. With its exemplary mix of memoir and reportage, this remarkable book is a modern true crime classic. Uh, meanwhile, over in fiction, uh, we don't have a lot of new stuff. At number eight, The Raspberry Danish Murder, a Hannah Swenson mystery by Joanne Fluke. Uh, we say this is a flaky mystery, uh, the 22nd Hannah Swenson mystery set in Lake Eden, Minnesota. And we say Hannah's new husband, Ross Barton, vanishes, leaving her mopey, but otherwise strangely unaffected by his absence. Uh, given that she can't resist trying to solve murders, she doesn't really look for him at all. She just assumes that since he took his keys, he'll be coming back at some point. Uh, we say that the Hannah Swenson books have always been more about the food than the mystery, and this installment contains enough recipes to satisfy the most enthusiastic baker. 
And just below that at number 10, The Hush by John Hart, uh, Edgar Winter Hart's sequel to 2009's The Last Child. So readers have been waiting for this for a while. And we say that it works best for readers who are already invested in the character Johnny Merriman, whose twin sister Alyssa vanished when they were 12, which was almost a decade before the action begins in this volume. Uh, newcomers will be able to pick up the threads, uh, but the heavy dose of the supernatural takes some getting used to. We say that Hart's prose is as evocative as ever, but fans who admire his work when it's confined to the natural world may feel that his adroit explorations of human nature are not improved by fantastical plot elements. And that's what we've got on the bestseller list. Not a lot going on. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Elaine Weiss tells us how the fight for American women's suffrage came down to the wire in Tennessee. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Apricot Irving. I'm the author of The Gospel of Trees, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today I've got Elaine Weiss on the line. Her new book is The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. Elaine, I'm so glad you could join us. I'm so pleased to be with you, Rose. So this book chronicles the events in Tennessee, the the final place where the constitutional amendment was uh, being debated and could pass or could fail, set the stage for us, giving the sense of the run-up to these events in Tennessee. Absolutely. In the summer of 1920, the women of America have been fighting for the vote for 72 years since that first large organized meeting at Seneca Falls in 1848. And they have been marching and protesting and lobbying and negotiating um, and going through enormous heartbreak and frustration and obstacles for seven decades. There are three generations of suffragists have been working on this. And the federal amendment, which will give the vote to Every woman in every state in every election is finally on the cusp of success after all this, and one more state has to ratify it, and Tennessee turns out to be the last best hope for the suffragists. 35 states have ratified, 36 are needed for passage, and it all comes down to Tennessee. And so all the forces, both for and against suffrage, gather in Nashville for the six weeks of really vicious but very theatrical uh, political maneuvering. And so you see all the themes of the suffrage movement. You see the characters of the suffrage movement and also the opposition uh, to the suffrage movement. And that's politicians and clergymen and corporate interests and ideological foes and conservative women all come to Tennessee and they battle it out uh, in the state house and in the hotels. Uh, and it's a very, very uh, dramatic uh, climax to this crusade that's, that's taken women uh, seven decades to get to this point. So it's one of those put, amazingly pivotal moments in American history, and we know so little about it. I think that was very uh, surprising to me. I, I have to say, I didn't know about it. I didn't know how it happened. I knew it happened. I couldn't vote, but I never questioned how that came to be and what it took uh, to get there. So amending the Constitution is very difficult. What went into making it possible? 
Well, it, it really goes back to the 19th century, and there are two ways for um, citizens to be given the vote. And it, the, the power of the vote actually resides in the states, and so the states can decide which of their citizens can get the vote unless that's superseded by federal law. So at first, the suffragists try state to state, and they try um, either by legislative action, you know, your state legislature saying, uh, yes, our, our women citizens can get the vote. And that does happen in Wyoming, in Utah, um, in a few of the Western states. They say, yep, if we're coming into the union, uh, our women are going to vote. And that happens. Uh, of course, there aren't that many women in those Western frontier states at the time, but it's, it's, a, it's a big um, uh, move forward. In the other states, um, the other way that it can happen is through popular referendum. Uh, so it's a vote. Uh, it's put up to the vote. Um, should women be entitled to have equal political rights? But guess who gets to decide that? Only the men. Only the men can vote to decide if women are entitled to it. And not surprisingly enough, it gets voted down uh, time and time again in many, many states. And the women are mounting campaigns in all of these, and it gets voted down. And finally, the last straw comes in the uh, after the Civil War when the vote is not given to women but is given to black men, and that is a, a huge disappointment to the women who, who had fought for abolition and for emancipation. And now they're told, no, uh, you are not going to be given the rights of citizenship. And there's a, a real break that, that happens then. It's kind of heartbreaking. But then in the 1870s, the suffragists say, we're going to, we're going to try to put this to a legal test, just like the civil rights, um, uh, crusaders do in the, in the 1960s and 50s. We're going to put this to a, uh, a, a test. And so Susan B. Anthony uh, goes to her polling booth in Rochester, New York, and about 150 other women do this, including Sojourner Truth, who tries to vote in the 1872 um, uh, presidential election, and they cast their votes, or they try to, and they're either turned away, or as Susan Anthony was able to deposit her vote in a ballot box, and then she's arrested for illegal voting. And she tries to bring, she's tried, and she tries to bring the the case through the courts to the Supreme Court. She's not able to do that. There is another case that goes to the Supreme Court. And basically, they're shut down. And they realize the only way all women in America are ever going to get the vote is through a constitutional amendment. And so they have it introduced by a, a, a friendly congressman uh, from California, and it it is introduced and it sits in Congress for 40 years, wow. 42 years, exactly. And every year, the suffragists go as a body and they testify and they uh, give all the legal arguments, all the arguments of justice and right, and we are a democracy, and how can half of the citizens of a democracy be denied the vote? And they give all these very reasoned arguments, and the congressmen are clipping their nails and reading the newspaper <laughs> and eating their lunch and what doing an anything but right, uh, paying attention. And then they say, oh, thank you, ladies. See you next year. And they, you know, put it in the file. And this happens for 40 years. 
And finally, it's not until after World War I and women have served in magnificent ways and, and in different ways than they've ever served before in a war effort. And finally, the argument that you know women are not full citizens and don't deserve to vote really begins to sound hollow to most, even to most politicians. And so it gets through Congress, um, gets through the House in, in 1918, and uh, e- even then the Senate sits on it and votes it down another two times, and it doesn't pass in the um, Senate until June of 1919, and then it has to go and be ratified by 36 state legislatures. So imagine this kind of campaign that has to be waged, not only at the federal level, but at the state level too, and in all the counties and all the cities. So it's a huge organizational feat that these women pull off, and they have to finance it themselves, they have to organize it themselves, and they don't have, you know, there's no Facebook. (laughs) There's not even... When they begin, there's not even te- telephone or typewriters. Uh, by 1920, there is, but there's not even radio. So everything is done by print or in-person, uh, marching, organizing. It's, it's an enormous um, logistical feat that they accomplish also. But then you realize they've also had to change hearts and minds. It's not just changing the law. Before they can do that, they have to change the public's perception of women's role in society. That comes first, and that's the hardest part. And that's what you see the characters doing in the book. Um, it, it takes place in Nashville. It's It very much plunges the reader into the heat of the battle and the, the kind of craziness that's going on. But it also brings you back to see the origins and the characters who are carrying this this torch through. And literally, it is a torch. Who were some of your favorite characters to write about? There's so many big personalities involved on both the, the pro and the anti side. Oh, yes. There, there are just such great characters. And, and sometimes I wanted to keep going on them, and my editor would say, no, I think we need to move along. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're almost larger than life. And you have the great suffragists, and I'm not even talking about Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but you have uh, women like Carrie Chapman Catt, who is the uh, the woman who is leading the mainstream suffragists in 1920, and she's in Nashville. She's leading them. She's miserable and hot and wants to go home to New York City, and she is there, uh, basically under house arrest because they won't let her outside because she's such a lightning rod that she's afraid they're afraid that she'll in, uh, antagonize the the southern legislators and so they keep her in locked up in the room and she has to just look out the window to see what's going on um she's a great character she spent her entire life fighting for this and you you learn the the incidents in her childhood that really influenced her, her decision to fight for women's rights. Um, so you have, you have that. And then you have, you know, the young militant, the young woman from Tennessee, Sue White, who um, grows up an orphan and has to make her way in the world and joins the suffrage movement because she wants equality and she wants to be able to go to law school. She wants all these uh, accomplishments that I remember you know, in the 1970s, people, women are, are pushing for still and, and in many ways are still in, in, in our economy and in our society. And she's pushing for it. And she comes back to Tennessee to lead the more aggressive young um, 
suffrage movement called the Women's Party, and she has to face her her former mentors, the older women in Tennessee who've who've nurtured her, and she's on she's working for the other team towards the same goal, but for the other team, and so there's a psychological complexity to to her return to Tennessee, and then you've got the anti-suffragists, uh, especially the women who I find so fascinating um, because. How can this be? How can other women be opposed to, to giving their own sex political liberty? And you, you begin to understand why. And so there's the Tennessee uh, leader of the suffragists, uh, Josephine Pearson, who comes at it as a social and religious conservative. And then you have a fascinating figure who is the national spokeswoman for the uh, anti-suffrage movement for the women opposed to anti uh, opposed to women's suffrage. She comes down from New York. Her name is Charlotte Rao, and she is <laughs> she is a uh, likes to fight. She is a brilliant debater, and she gives excellent um, sound bites to the media. Uh, she always has a clever and colorful way to describe things, and they eat it up. And so she gets lots of press, and she d- dares the suffragists to debate her. And she's a very intelligent, very articulate woman who whose career is um, trying to thwart other women from uh, gaining political equality. So the contradictions are fascinating, and then she's fascinating. So I think readers will be both surprised to see that so many women are fighting against their own liberty, against their own rights as citizens, and kind of intrigued by who these women are and where they're coming from. And of course, we see echoes of that today. There are, there are women who, who um, take a side of arguments that uh, you, you might not think uh, would be in the benefits of of their sister citizens, but um, it's just interesting to see what their background is, what where they're coming from, and I think we see some of the same uh, ideological motivations, uh, foundations today. Um, so I found those really fascinating, and then some of the men are great. They're the the battling uh, newspaper publishers in Nashville. And then there's Warren G. Harding, the Republican candidate uh, for president. And uh, I think readers will find that there are echoes of some current um, uh, occupants of the White House in, in, in that campaign. So I think there, there's some very interesting modern uh, resonances that, that readers are going to find in these characters. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. I'm talking with Elaine Weiss, author of The Woman's Hour. One of the factors that you haven't mentioned in opposition to women's suffrage is racism. And Josephine Pearson very bluntly said that uh, women getting the right to vote would be a danger to white supremacy. Tell us a little bit about that factor, especially in the South. Absolutely. Um, I think the racial aspect of this fight was the most surprising to me and, and perhaps the most shocking. Race is an issue in women's suffrage from the very beginning because it emerges out of the abolition movement. Many of the women we associate as the pioneers of uh, women's rights, Elizabeth Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and Lucy Stone and Lucretia Mott are really begin their careers as abolitionists. And so that idea that equal equal citizenship um, end of slavery, equal rights, um, extends universal suffrage is, is their call. And they're very disappointed when black men are given the vote after the Civil War and women are not. And they continue the fight. And when it comes down to a southern state, most of the southern states have rejected the federal amendment. They have rejected it partly because it's associated with abolitionism. And the ghosts of the Civil War really hover around this story. Uh, and, and as we know, it's still a factor in our political life today. And so you see the Civil War, you see the Jim Crow laws uh, impacting this because one of the strongest arguments against giving women the vote in the southern states, and especially in Tennessee, is it will allow black women to vote. And some people see that as a threat to white supremacy. Now, what has already happened, black men legally have the right to vote, but they've been prevented from voting uh, by Jim Crow laws and intimidation and um, literacy, outrageous literacy requirements and poll taxes. And so they have been intimidated and, and forced into disenfranchisement. Legally, they can vote. Practically, they can't. And the idea of giving black women the vote is very frightening to certain established powers, especially in the southern states. And so racism becomes a main theme in this fight in Nashville. And it's ugly and it's um, it, it kind of heartbreaking. But then you realize these same arguments about who has the right to vote and who should be equal um, are going to be resurrected again 50 years later in the civil rights movement and there's another fight it's a it's probably a continuation of the same fight of who has rights in a democracy and we're going to see those same white supremacist uh arguments being raised again against voting rights against integration and of course we still are hearing those today so that racial aspect is both surprising i I did not associate women's suffrage and race uh, considerations in the same breath. And now I realize that it's central, that they're, they're both intertwined so completely because it's about equality. It's about equality of women and it's about equality of all citizens. And so whenever we see a, a threat to voting rights, we should be thinking of the suffragists and thinking of this, this racial aspect, too. You've mentioned a couple of times that there are some echoes in present-day politics. What do you think readers are going to find very familiar, or uh, what do you think will give readers a new perspective on what's happening right now? 
Well, I think, um, as I said, <laughs> uh, Warren Harding um, is is running for president in 1920. His uh, campaign theme is America First, <laughs> which uh, was a little striking as I'm writing this during the 19- 2016 campaign. I'm saying, wait, I've heard this before. <laughs> wow, yeah. And yeah, um, the racial aspect again. We're in a we're in a time when uh, discussions about race are fraught, and they are at times ugly, and it brings back to the kinds of arguments that were being used in Tennessee and in other southern cities against this measure of equality. Um, I think it's a time of uncertainty in 1920. The nation isn't quite sure where it wants to go. Uh, they're worried about immigration and about absorbing new citizens, and that's part of it. Um, they're worried about uh, labor issues. They're worried about America's role in the world and whether it's supposed to be a leader or a follower. So a lot of the same national conversations are going on in 1920 as going on now. And it it reflects, it, it you see the the impact of those in the debates in Nashville. But these aren't academic debates. These are men and women you know, screaming at the top of their lungs, um, uh, battling each other, uh, blocking each other. Uh, and, and it's just fascinating what coalitions develop and don't develop. So I think it's, it's a primer in how politics works now and then. I think it tells us not only where we've been, and this is a history, where we've been, but how we got there. And then how do we where are we now? And what does this tell us about, uh, inform our understanding of where we are now? And I'll, I'll just say there's this lovely anecdote that on election day, uh, 2016, I've handed in the manuscript and, um, I'm alerted that around the country, this very interesting development is, is happening, that women are casting their votes, uh, in November, 2016. And then they're, making pilgrimages to various cemeteries where the suffragists are buried. And these are the characters in my book. So they go to the uh, grave sites of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Carrie Catt in New York City. They go to the grave of Alice Paul in New Jersey and Susan B. Anthony's grave in Rochester, where 10,000 people visit her grave that day. And they put their I Voter stickers on it, especially women. And they... They, they place flowers and they place thank you cards. They're thanking the suffragists who fought for the vote for them. And that was so moving to me. I had just written about these women and here were today's women, uh, thanking them in that way. Um, and, and that was very moving, uh, despite what would happen in the next 24 hours. Um, it was very moving and it, it shows how much what these women went through, these suffragists went through, and especially in this culminating battle when they are so anxious and so unsure they're going to win and their legacies are at stake and their political futures at stake, um, that they today uh, we're still realizing how much they gave to us and how much we're still uh, in that fight. And men and women fighting for their rights, and whether that's voting rights or civil rights or uh, rights to equal education and 
uh, all kinds of realms of what are we as a democracy. We're still in that story. So the story takes place in 1920, but it tells us what we're up against now. What was your research process like? You mentioned that not a lot is known. Do you mean that just not a lot has been told in the um, kind of popular literature, like the type of book that you're you're writing, or that uh, a lot of this history has been lost? No, a lot of the history is there. There, there are. Uh, I certainly wish there was uh, some more archival. Um, documentation of some of the characters, some of the women, um, and their personal lives. Often there's their political, their public role is very well documented, but their personal is not. And sometimes they destroyed it. Sometimes they destroyed it or their heirs destroyed it. Um, and that's the way, uh, that, that's the uh, challenge of uh, historical research uh, is to find those. There's a lot in the the archives and I used um, first of all, the state archives in Nashville, in Tennessee, did a great job of collecting a lot of the documents of what was transpiring in those weeks in, in Tennessee. And so the, those letters, I have letters, personal letters, memoirs, clippings, little jottings. Uh, they're all there. They're on microfilm. And it was great. I could, I could just uh, recreate each day. Basically, I could recreate what was happening each day. I could read the newspapers. Again, having historical newspapers online now makes historical research so much more vivid, so much more authentic. And we can read the newspapers and see how the different reporters are reporting the same scene. Uh, we can get details from that. I could then go to the Library of Congress and read the official uh, correspondence between the suffragists, which are held in the papers of the of the suffrage organizations of the Library of Congress. I could look through presidential um, correspondence and see what the politicians are talking about, um, and it's it's all there. And um, I love doing that kind of research. You have to, at certain points, say, "Okay, that's enough. You can't do anymore." Uh, there's always more to do. But what surprised me was that there are there's a great deal of excellent, excellent um, research and writing on the suffrage movement, but there is not a lot of popular approach to it. Um, Jean Baker, who's a great suffrage scholar, wrote a book called Sisters a few years ago, which is wonderful. It's um, character sketches of some of the seminal uh, suffrage leaders. Um, so, so you learn about them as people, and it's wonderful, but it's, it's not a narrative history. I wanted to tell this as a narrative history. I wanted to tell it as a story, and that is what I, I strove to do, to tell it as a great, rollicking, dramatic, suspenseful yarn. And that is the story of what happens in Nashville. And then to pull the camera back and be able to explain the suffrage movement. How did it come to Nashville? How does this happen? Who are these characters? What are they up against? What are their their qualms? What are their quirks? How do we know them as, as women and as men? Um, and so I was actually surprised that there wasn't very much done uh, 
at that level as for popular history, for the general reader, not the student of history, not the feminist historian, um, but just a, a reader who wants a good story and learn about such an important part of our history. And, and I saw, gee, this has not been done. And, and so I um, struck off to, to do it and tell it as a story. Uh, I'm trained as a journalist, and so I really appreciated all the little details that I could use to deepen the story. So I could tell you, um, you know, by reading the newspapers, I know what these women are wearing. Uh, not that that's important, but I know what the men are wearing, too. Um, I know what uh, what they're singing in the hallways when they're drunk, because that's reported. And it gives a, an element of immediacy and uh, color to the story that is often stripped away when you're just reading it as, you know, and that's this political movement and, and that political movement clash. You know, you could have told the story in, in five sentences, but that would not have done justice to it and wouldn't have given it the sort of deep resonance that it, it should have. And I think it does have for us. So this is mostly just a great story. Uh, I think it's suspenseful. It's a political Thriller, as I like to call it, because uh, it's political theater. You see, you see how uh, political parties work. You see how campaigns work. You see how social uh, justice movements work. You're seeing all of that as these characters play out, uh, and then you're also seeing this an incredible battle um, with all kinds of uh, dirty tricks and bribery and fights and kidnappings uh, all going on in in the service of this great civil rights um, movement. So I think I wanted to fill that void. I think we'll see more as uh, the centennial of suffrage, women's suffrage approaches in 2020. I hope we will. Uh, I'm glad I'm I'm uh, out there in, in front right now. But I think it's a story that we need to know, that we can be instructive to us now as we enter another phase of uncertainty about our democracy and questions about who we are as a nation. Um, and I also think it's a time to take, like blow the dust off this history and make it a great story because that's what it is. I've been talking with Elaine Weiss, and you can find her political thriller, The Woman's Hour, in stores right now. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be with you. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed talks about the PubTech Connect conference. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Morgan Jerkins, and I am the author of This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, Feminist, and White America, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about PubTech Connect. Hi, Calvin. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good, good. So tell us about PubTech Connect, what it is, and what it was like. Well, um, PubTech Connect is re really, it's PW's foray into creating a forum to talk about where we are in the publishing business now. And the publishing business now, we're talking about technology. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you talk about technology, 
that's only one level of the, the discussion because how you know how technology affects your business, how it affects your consumers, your employees, how you deliver content, all of this is a big ball of wax. And what we've done in sort of the post, uh, I mean, there have there been a number of big digitally oriented book conferences in the past few years. PW has staked out some territory here. They partner uh, with NYU Center for Publishing, and they put together a program. This is the second year we've done it. Mm-hmm. And um, if I do say so myself, because I was one of the presenters, I think you can, you can get a really good idea of what's going on in how we think about business, how we think about audiences, how we think about delivering content, not just in the book industry, but in related industries in magazine publishing, in digital publishing, because we're kind of all in the same boat, you know, right. the same big boat of content <laughs> and how to get in front of our, our, our readers, how to connect them with our authors. So it's a day long conference about publishing and technology, and it's held at NYU's Kimmel Center. Okay, so this year, as you said, it was the second year. Give us yeah. a sense of what the program was like. So it was put together by um, Carl Pritzett, here, our, our PW's uh, business development guy, and Andrea Chambers, who is the uh, head of professional studies center at, uh, for publishing at NYU. And really what they do, uh, to their credit, they go out and they really get kind of thoughtful people, both big legacy publishers, if that isn't a, a pejorative. I don't take it that way. Big companies with long histories who have to turn their battleships around, kind of like, say, the New York Times, which was uh, the keynote presenter, Mm -hmm. traditional book publishing houses like HarperCollins, but also, you know, startups like uh, uh, Gimlet Media that puts on uh, so many of the podcasts that Mm -hmm. we hear today, or like Anchor, which is this new podcasting app that allows really make it easy for everyone to sort of uh, do their own podcast, innovators and startups. And put them in on a program and have them talk to each other. And and what we find out, of course, is there's stuff that we can use, you know, back and forth. You mentioned you were a presenter. What were you presenting? Well, I, I presented, and I like this, is, I'm kind of proud of this, I presented the Innovators panel. And really, if there was a theme that came out of certainly the morning sessions, it was how do you manage these new technologies that are available not only to deliver content, but to bring in readers to whatever you're doing. And, and by that, I mean audio, audio books, podcasting, virtual reality, or, or even conventional video. Uh, how do you manage these things and still deliver some kind of content, either the primary content or some sort of promotional content that still maintains your sense of authenticity. And by that, I mean something that's consistent with your brand and your history and that your your customers or potential customers will say, hey, oh, hey, yeah, that makes sense for PW or HarperCollins or Food 52, which is was on the among the innovators, uh, which is like a firm uh, on an app, um, a website that delivers food content. And what happened in the afternoon? Just quickly about the morning, because it, yeah, it, it, it was a number of other, um, uh, that panel actually featured, among others, um, Vox Media, mm-hmm. which is the news. It's it, well, it's, be, it's probably best known as a, um, a news and information site, but actually what they do is they have a variety of categories, verticals in the jargon of the day, you know, for food, for entertainment, for real estate, for sports. They were on the panel, Amanda Hesser, who is the, the, uh, is the CEO of Food52, my Michael Mignano is the head of Anchor, the, the app that I mentioned before. And and the panel was interesting because I tell you, one of the key technologies that came out of that panel and others was podcasting. 
Hmm. We do podcasts here, of course. Obviously. BW has seven or eight podcasts. I do one on on uh, on on, on uh, comics publishing, but really, it just seemed uh, one of the one of the interesting uh, things about the morning session was that almost every panel, though they may have been initially about other things, seemed to end up becoming about podcasting. Mostly, I think, because of its ease, because of the excitement, because of the ability to bring passionate people together to talk about the topics that they're they're interested in, and the ease of setting something up and and suddenly you know having an audience so that was really great and and it seemed to come up another it was interesting another person on the morning panel, Elisa Christinger uh, from an interesting site that i didn 't know much about refinery twenty nine mm-hmm. it 's a women 's focused media group um, they do a variety of things. But one of the things that they do have is a podcast, uh, and I think it's called Strong Opinions Loosely Held. And she produces it and is sort of the um, the anchor on it. But it, it wasn't what they initially planned to start. They really want to do video uh, aimed at all kinds of women's issues. But one of the, her key point was in this day of of connection to your audience and, and social media to make sure you're in communications with your audience about what they want. Uh, not just what you want. And they sort of realized that one of the things that they were saying as they planned to launch a video content stream was that their fans wanted and women wanted podcasts. They want podcasts on a variety of topics, discussion that, that, are, that are edited, well-produced. So her uh, message to the audience was, so uh, who wants video content? Does your audience want it? Or does your boss want it? So make sure that you, you, you don't confuse the two. The afternoon session actually sort of brought together uh, a number of people that were putting together, um, looking at new ways to distribute content, new ways to create content in this era, not necessarily as a podcast. Uh, for instance, Molly Barton, um, formerly with Penguin, but who's an entrepreneur now, she has a, a platform called Serial Box where they actually put together episodic shows online that you can either get through as a text or I believe as an audio download. Mm-hmm. And they put them together like TV shows. They they put, you know, they got a room full of writers. They they bang out multiple episodes and you can subscribe to them. And they publish them in book format, which I know because yes. we cover a lot of them oh, in my science fiction section. And one oh, of them, cool. actually, The Witch That Came In From The Cold, mm-hmm. was on my best books list oh, last okay, year. Okay, there you go. So, so uh, um, definitely doing really, yeah. really strong, interesting work. She uh, was on a panel with Perna Gupta, who has a venture called Hooked. And she also puts together uh, uh, genre narratives, but using in the form of text messages. Hmm. They looked like dialogue, you know. So they talked about their businesses. There was also a, quite a bit of discussion about diversity and inclusion. Uh, the panel included uh, Lee and Lowe pub- publisher Jason Lowe, who talked about uh, his work. Uh, diversifying his staff. Diversity starts at home in mm-hmm. some cases. Uh, and, and just talks about the evolution of the concept and different ways you can look at it. And then um, then there was, I think there was a quite a big, there was another panel uh, talk about where publishing is going next, which brought together uh, people like uh, Quartz, which is um, another online publication. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jessica Gross of, of Lenny, the uh, Lena Dunham mm-hmm. newsletter that goes out. Let's see, Sarah Fisher of Axios, who uh, they're all talking about how you reach audiences today, different ways to uh, do content. 
And really just kind of looking at, oh, and you know what? And also Jamila Wilson, who's the publisher of the Feminist Press, um, talking also about diversity. You know, in many cases, the need for more diversity. Uh, we all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe could have used a little more discussion about, you know, strategies to get there. Um, but really, all of these topics were a big part of the um, the afternoon session. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for that report. It definitely sounds something worth catching uh, next year when it comes around again. All right. Uh, I'll come back again. All right. right. Thank you. It's always great to have you on the show. All right. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 